Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Joshua Luft, co-founder and CEO of Everlasting Wardrobe. Everlasting Wardrobe is built on this simple premise. Children grow, but clothes don't. So why are we buying all these clothes that are destined for short lives and eventually landfill? It's dynamics like these that underpin one of the more wasteful and environmentally taxing industries, fashion. And Everlasting Wardrobe solves this with their monthly subscription, where families pay $40 a month and get eight different pieces of everyday clothing that are designed for their kids, the age that they are, where you live so it matches the weather in your area, the family's taste preferences. And in the episode, Joshua and I will discuss what actually inspired the idea for Everlasting, bootstrapping the initial marketplace, convincing hundreds of brands to join the platform and give their inventory for free, lessons from running one of the highest grossing college bars in the US, and much, much more. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Joshua Luft, co-founder and CEO of Everlasting Order. Joshua, welcome to the show. Hey, Peter. Thank you very much for having me. So, Joshua, this has been quite the few months. And I think during this time, why I feel so fortunate doing what I do here is being able to highlight the diamonds in the rough, showcase some of the good things that are happening behind the scenes. So let's kick off with the basics. What is Everlasting Wardrobe and how did you come to start it? Sure. Yeah. So just to kind of give a quick breakdown, it's just a kid's clothing rental membership. Parents get eight pieces of clothing per month per child. They get to wear them as often as they like over that month. And then they send it all back in a prepaid mailer. Our stylist and our clothing recommendation engine combine together to curate their next month's wardrobe. And that's really how it kind of works from a family perspective. For me personally, getting into this had a lot to do with my niece and nephew especially when they were younger, just buying them presents. I mean, getting excited about a gift that they were excited about, especially something they got to wear, like a, a fashion item or a pair of cool shoes. Really, the, the kind of the, the problem came about and really resonated with me when I had purchased a, a pair of black-on-black canvas leather chuck tees for my uh, high tops for my niece. She wore them every day with dresses, with anything she could put them on with. And then literally three months later, she just grew out of them. And obviously, I was very frustrated and disappointed. Like, you're trying to buy your niece and nephew a present, and they can only use it for a couple months. It kind of is a little disconcerting. And obviously, thinking about that from a parent's perspective, where that's happening, you mean, every day, month over month, you know, I, I can imagine being even a bigger problem. So that's really where the impetus of the idea came from. And then as far as the uniqueness of our model, really trying to kind of change what exists in the market right now. We saw a lot of flaws with some of the existing models, and we really wanted to make sure um, that we were bringing the brand partners into this as well, rather than kind of acting as a competitor to them. So that element of the business came a little bit later, but definitely a huge part of what we do as well. This idea seems like one of those, how did this not exist years and years ago type opportunities, right? You spend all of this money buying brand new apparel just for your kids to grow out of it, and then you throw the peril away, right? Or even trying to find a relative, a colleague, someone to give it to, because if you did spend all this money on it, you don't want it to go to waste like that. So even that's a hassle, trying to you know, almost 
take the guilt off your plate being like, I, I need to find another home for these because they're great clothes still. It's just they don't fit my kids anymore. I can imagine that those early days must have been so challenging. So can you just paint a picture? What did that first mile look like? How did you build the initial supply? How did you like, where did you even start? Sure. No, great, great question. So I'm very big on kind of trying to, from the idea inception to everything we've done over the past few years, really been trying to test out and prove any element of this business I can. I mean, what we saw was even when we started this company, we certainly weren't the first rental apparel service out there. So you have companies like Rent the Runway, Latoke, Winnie B that were already out and were already getting to be successful even at that point when we started. So our thoughts were more than anything, rental, the rental market makes sense. It's logical, even from a parent's perspective, from a, like a woman or a man renting for themselves, it makes sense. And obviously, as you said, it makes even more sense for a child because it's not I don't want to be photographed in this twice. It's literally, this doesn't fit me anymore. So from that element, we felt very confident about proving and de-risking that element of the business. What we wanted to prove more than anything, and this is kind of what I think makes us a little bit more unique than some of the other businesses out there, we wanted to really prove the brand partner side of what we're doing. So really how that kind of came about, and what you mentioned, the start of it all, um, was really proving that a brand would give us free inventory because we are a marketing platform, not an e-commerce or really a rental service like a lot of these other platforms are. So whereas a lot of the other platforms can be rent so you don't, ha- you don't have to buy, ours is more of a- aligned with rent so you know what to buy. Because as, as obviously as with a child, getting and giving them eight pieces for a month, they can literally wear those eight pieces in one day. So it's not like it's going to completely subsidize their entire wardrobe. But at the same time, it's definitely an, a good amount of clothes where it's helping parents not have to buy things month after month, as you mentioned, that they just grow out of anyway. So we would call these brands and try to pitch them, explain to them how we were different than what was out there, how it made sense for them to give us free inventory. And most of the time, I'd say probably about 90% of the time, we usually would get hung up on or <laughs> tell them, no, thank you, that we don't give free clothing away. That doesn't make sense. But when we got to really sit down from a logical perspective and explain to them the value that we provide compared to the cost of digital advertising, things like that, and their other channels, that's when it really started to slowly kind of resonate with them and get them to really understand what we were doing and how we were trying to help them. On the member side, um, the way we really tried to start to prove out that side more than anything was we actually went to a couple luxury boutiques. I think there was like three or four that were closing at the time from different owners. And we literally purchased every single piece of garment from them, their clothing racks, their mannequins, just about anything that was in their stores. And then we took all the non-applicable um, pieces, uh, like maternity wear, our sh- like shoes, accessories, things like that. And we flipped them to like flash sale sites, to like Gilt, Rulala, and made a Good, good amount of profit on that from those flips, plus got another start original like 10,000 pieces um, of clothing for free. So that wow. way, when we did our alpha testing, we had clothing that we could send out to families for free that were just trying out the service for us to say, is this something you would even participate in? Does this even make sense to you? And then from that alpha testing, we got a lot of great feedback, especially with how little diversity in brand we had, how little diversity in style, how little options we had for each size. So even with that limited amount of clothing, we had great reactions. And then even with the limited amount of members we have, we started to see value being you mean, presented to the brands. 
So for both sides of it, it was really, I mean, slow, slowly inching forward on each side of the marketplace um, to mm -hmm. really kind of prove out both ends at the same time. Wow. So the interesting thing here is whenever I hear stories around how founders bootstrap a marketplace company, I'm always fascinated in how they hack the other side of, of the marketplace. Typically, it's the supply, but you got the initial inventory for free, which mm -hmm. is a huge and genius hack. But what else did you have to do to bootstrap the demand side? And then I think more broadly, did you have to raise like a formal financing round for this? I mean, talk me through like what it actually took to start getting the wheels turning. Yeah, so we right after kind of we had gone through the alpha testing and and done those original clothing flips, we we were actually introduced to Quake Capital. They're a venture firm based in New York, but I know that they have offices in Austin and Seattle and LA, I believe as well. And they host accelerators now all over the country. New York was their first location, and we were in their second cohort of that actually. So they were really excited about the idea and about kind of what we were doing and what we had proven already between the alpha testing, making $30,000, $40,000 in those clothing flips, um, and then get obviously getting 10,000 pieces for free just to start off with. I think that's what they were the most impressed about. And they brought us into the accelerator from there. We completed that. We also, about a year after that, we did small friends and family round, under $100,000 just to kind of finish out the build. And then that's really all the money we've raised thus far. We just opened our seed round this month, uh, which is you mean, not the maybe the most advantageous time to raise, but we opened it this month. And Quake actually is, has reinvested now from their high confidence fund or conviction wow. fund. I always get that wrong. But we have uh, certainly taken some money. We're not, we're not completely bootstrapped by any means, but um, just really trying to prove out. And that's kind of our goal with it. Anytime we take any, any investor's money, whether it be a friend's family or uh, kind of an institutional investor is really trying to prove out to them how much value that we can get with the money they've given us, just so that, you mean obviously similar quake that they'd feel comfortable reinvesting as well. Wow. So if we fast forward a little bit, right, you, you get going on those early days, you're getting hung up nine out of 10 times, but one out of every 10 times, there's a brand partner who says, you know what? This makes a lot of sense. And they give you this amazing apparel that you then loop into this membership platform. So talk me through the demand side. How did you build your initial base of members? And then looking back, what were some of the assumptions you made that you found to be maybe totally off base or you were surprised that how people responded was maybe a little bit different than what you anticipated, but how did you build that initial demand? And what did you learn in those initial days that have now informed um, your, your operations today? Sure. Just quickly on the brand partner side, actually, just so you know, it, just because one out of 10 doesn't hang up on you, that one out of 10 just certainly does not say yes necessarily, though. But we were definitely, <laughs> we kind of try to hack that side as well, the demand on that. We hosted a couple multi-brand sample sales here in Brooklyn, where we host a space, get them a really cheap rate and have multiple brands in the same space really to kind of help demand and help that foot traffic for them. So we actually then got to sit with them for two, three days straight 
hopefully making them a few thousand dollars before we even really pitched them the idea. So that's how we really got our first few brand partners on board. And obviously at that point, then it starts to go from, I don't want to be the first to jump to like, uh oh, we're going to be left behind. So now with like 140 brand partners, we're starting to get to that point. Um, where people are actually just reaching out to us through Instagram and email and just with the people, brands we've never even heard of previously. On the member demand side, though, the most demand really has been from, from our personal network. We really haven't spent a single dollar necessarily capturing any members. Thus far, we are going to be focusing on that and getting a little bit more aggressive on adding paid social strategies and things like that. But for right now, all the members have, for the most part, have come on from our personal network. My co-founder and I are 35, 36, so we're kind of in that age where a good portion of our friends are getting to, to having children and things like that. So it's kind of obviously a good time uh, for us. But at the same time, w- with kind of the demand as well, we launched on Product Hunt in January. And that has been a huge help for us, both bringing on brands, bringing on members, bringing on investors, and, and even bringing on like business development contacts. So those two definitely have been our biggest sources. We're very proud of our Instagram account. And that's mm-hmm. been a, a great source for us to really kind of not only get brands, but also get members interested in the service. Because I feel like one of the biggest questions and, and worries for a member, you pay, you sign up, and then we have to almost instantly answer the question, hey, no worries, you didn't make a mistake. You know what I mean? This is where you want to be. This is what's a good idea. But it's just so new what we do. So there's always that apprehension there. And, and, and the funny and kind of going back to the other question you had asked about kind of if there's anything I've found that was interesting this, throughout this process, uh, one of the coolest things that we, I think we found is how quickly the kids almost adapt to this more than the parents. Just because one, one of our advisors, actually, she was telling us she had been a user for a very long time. And she was letting us know that her, her daughter, like in the third month, like started asking, is this something we keep or is this something we have to send back? And she started to get kind of the cadence of it that some things were like mom and dad bought this. You can wear this whenever you want. And then this one, these other items are, we, you get eight new pieces all the time every month. And you get, it's almost like you get a gift, but you just have to send it back at the end of the month. So it's, it's really cool to see uh, how quickly kids have been picking it up. And then really for us, it's trying to educate families and really try to kind of explain what we do and, and kind of ho- hopefully answer those questions for them to, to get rid of that apprehension about trying something new and, and experiencing a new model of something that they might not necessarily be 100% comfortable with yet. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. So if we zoom in a little bit to the model, I'd love to better understand, A, how you arrived at this cadence, the monthly versus a quarterly, but um, how you arrived at that timing. And then B, what is the actual economic model beyond the renting? So I see on your site that if you come to love a piece of apparel, you have the option to buy it. So I'd love to hear kind of what those arrangements are with the brand partners. How did you arrive at the cadence and then what is the model and relationship with the brand partners beyond the renting? Sure. So for us, with the monthly cadence, as I mentioned, our goal is not to be an e-commerce box. We don't want to be a place where you get the clothing for a few days, you have to, you're almost like pressured to make a decision, and then after that, it's kind of like out of your hands. The, the, the big mm-hmm. problems we found with those, more than anything, obviously, the pressure to purchase starts to really kick in buyer fatigue. And that really kind of starts to limit people's lifetime value. Because at some point, for example, I was a very early member of Trunk Club. 
One of my good friends was an early employee. She, she called me when I was still in school to see if I would be interested. And I, I mean, I love the concept, but after month five, month six, I'm like, I don't really need any more clothes. I don't want to buy anything else. You know what I mean? Like I don't have anything mm -hmm. else to, you know I mean, that I really desperately need right now. And I, obviously I'm not necessarily the most fashion forward person either. So for, for that element, like I just was so worried about that. Like people just being like, no, no, no I, I already have enough clothes. I don't need more. I don't need to purchase more. And that was one of the big issues we saw from the, the member side. On the brand partner side, we, what we see with these issues is really as much as they are necessarily like a wholesale customer or something of them potentially, they're really actually a competitor. Because what happens is not only are they kind of walling off that customer from that brand, it's not like they share the information, share the contact info, share the feedback with them at all. It's kind of like you're on your own. They're our customer. They're not your customer. The way we wanted to approach this and the, really the way we wanted to structure this company and this model was really beyond, obviously, customer experience, members, making sure that families have the best experience possible, but at the same time, not forgetting about brands. We, the, the way we kind of uh, have structured it is that not only do we not compete with them, but we actually share all this feedback data that the, that the parents are sharing with us. We tell the parents Everything you share with us can go directly to a brand, to their designers, to help improve their next season's collections. Uh, whether it be the sizing, the style, the color, the prints, whatever their opinion is, obviously getting lots of different anecdotal evidence over and over again and to be able to structure that in an easy-to-consume way to understand, like, why did this style do well with this demographic to do what better than this style with this demographic? When you can get to those really brass tacks, you have a better understanding of your business uh, from that mm -hmm. element of it all. So with the, with the monthly cadence, our goal is to take every single piece of clothing that they send us, and a lot of times it's in the thousands of amounts of like pallets of what they're sending us, and we try to get every single piece to as many families as possible, just like any other like banner ad or any other collateral that you would want to share with your customers. Because our mm -hmm. thoughts are, no matter how adorable your content is, and a lot of these kids' clothing companies are phenomenal at producing content, it doesn't compare to your own child wearing it, smiling comfortable, confident, fighting with you at the end of the day to take it off, wanting to wear it again the next day. When you have those experiences with your child, you get that comfort feeling of they'll actually wear this. This was worth spending money on. I don't have to fight with them in the morning to put this on. Like this is a win right here. So for mm -hmm. those kinds of aspects, it just really makes a lot of sense for the member. And at the same time, it makes a lot of sense for the brand to participate because, again, we don't try to take their data and knock off their styles. We don't do any of those things. We really try to introduce them to the, the member to the brand. And in that vein, kind of answering your second question, although a parent is allowed to purchase something out of the box if, if there is something they absolutely love, we actually discount the items in the box usually less than the exclusive discount the brand is sharing with us. And in that case, what happens is our goal is to say you as a parent – absolutely love so much. Don't buy the item, the t-shirt, the leggings, the pair of joggers in your box that maybe has been worn two or three times, but get this next, go to their website, use the exclusive discount code, get even a bigger discount than buying it out of the box. And maybe buy a few other things that you liked from this store, maybe buy the size up, maybe buy the print or color you really wanted than necessarily the one we included mm -hmm. within your wardrobe. So from all those aspects, we encourage families not to purchase out of the box and go to their website and you mean become a direct customer of theirs, obviously, which is great for the brand so that they can really kind of retarget with them with other products, show them their new seasons collections, things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and we've seen that have a huge effect on, you mean, being able to, the experiential marketing aspect of it. As I mentioned, no matter how many times you see a cute kid in cute clothes, 
the same thing that is not even comparable just to actually watching your child wear it and knowing that's a good purchase. We, we glossed over this dynamic, but I think it's important to hit home on the impact element from a sustainability point of view, right? F- the fashion industry is notoriously one of the most carbon intensive and wasteful industries in the world, right? We have all this textile and all this fabric that gets printed, it gets created, and then, like we've discussed, it gets tossed. It has really short life cycles. And in many ways, this, like the renting economy at large, but then applying those same dynamics here is genius. I mean, kids grow, yeah. right? So the last thing you want is to, A, I mean, you look at the financial investment, you're investing capital in something that is inherently short-lived, right? That has a short life cycle. And then B, you have all of the environmental cost. So I don't know if you have any stats or metrics on impact, if that's something that you measure, but that's something we're definitely trying to structure to, to, to measure now more than anything. I mean, we still have like a, you know, we're not crazy amount of members by any means. So we're mm-hmm. trying to still build this kind of stuff up as we go and really try to, to, to make it so that it's easy to consume. So what we're going to be doing, we created like a brand glossary of, I think that we're at close to 3,000 brands now all over the world that we use internally for our recommendation engine. But at the same time, it'll eventually be like an external like brand glossary that a parent can search through. And we're going to be having uh, different sustainability scores on each brand, depending on a few different metrics, whether it be the working conditions, the materials they use, the dyes and things, I mean, um, along those kinds of parameters to really, because mm-hmm. we found more than anything that, I mean, parents and families are very willing to, to be sustainable and to help out the environment and to care about the, the earth that they're leaving for the, and their environment they're leaving for their children. But you have to make it convenient. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the number one thing. It's really parents are so crazy busy they have so much to do if you try to put another thing another thing on their to-do list you're kind of just asking to fail so from that element we really try to find with it with this membership not only to introduce them to organic and sustainable brands ethically made brands from all over the world but really limit and eliminate those fast fashion purchases they make because although uh, i don't want to like call out necessarily any brands but these brands are literally burning like tens of thousands, tons of clothing, you know what I mean? And then they're trying to say that they're sustainable now or other brands. I mean, it's just like we want parents to be able to feel great about the things that they're purchasing and about the brands that they're supporting. So that's a big element of kind of what we're trying to do on the, on the parent side. Again, almost even kind of mention what you said. Our, our company's tagline is kids grow, clothing doesn't because it's true. You know what I mean? Like it just it's very logical and it makes sense from that perspective. So more than anything, we actually try to help parents purchase less. So over a, a year membership, it, it will cost you $480 currently to have Everlasting Wardrobe for a year. Over that time, you get 96 pieces of clothing that obviously you're just going to grow out of anyway because you're a child and, and you're consistently hitting growth spurts. Um, for that same price, you know what I mean? They're purchasing maybe 12, 13 pieces of high quality pieces of clothing and again, that are just going to get grown out of. So it, it, from like an economic and a sustainability sense, I'm just not purchasing so much and not consuming so much. They get the, the like I said, we just make it easy for them because they're still getting 96 pieces of clothes over the year. But at the same time, those 96 pieces are going to make it to a bunch of other families. And then at the end of its, its rental life, and once we've taken it out of the service, we donate every single piece of clothing that's in condition to do so. And anything too damaged to donate, 
we actually recycling partners. So we're trying to really close our entire loop within this so that brands are, you mean, their clothing that they send us, they know it gets multiple use life as going to multiple families as a marketing platform for them and really mm -hmm. kind of building up that engagement. And then after that, they can feel good about that it's going to either be donated or recycled and it's not going to be really, I mean, it mm -hmm. won't be contributing to the, the negative effects on the environment. On the brand partner side, though, um, we're really trying to, you mean, help improve what they're doing as well. So again, not only is it, can we help you make better clothing? Because with all the feedback data we're providing you, I mean, what's the economic and environmental cost of making one style that doesn't sell through and having mm -hmm. tens of thousands of pieces of clothing just sitting around in your warehouse and all that, all the water that went into it, all the dyes that went into it, all the, uh, the cost to make the fabric, and you're really not even necessarily using it. So how, how much would it save you as a brand if we could give you feedback from all the past clothing you've made to know when you make your next season's collection, don't make these same mistakes. At the same time, we actually let, parent, um, let these brands use past season's collections in some cases. Some use new with tags, uh, trade show samples. We actually even have some of our brands sending future season's prototypes to, to test out and get feedback on before they commit to these large production runs. So really, as I mentioned, I think convenience is the number one thing. Make it convenient for brands, make it convenient for, for members and for families to, to do their part. But obviously for us, it's, it's kind of doing everything in the behind the scenes so that they can have the, that good feeling without necessarily having to do too much extra work. Mm -hmm. So Joshua, I always leave off with a couple questions that are not necessarily uh, directly related to the business that you're building, but more broadly about you... Um, as a person and sources of inspiration. So one of my favorite recurrent questions has to do with you and it's who has had the greatest impact on your learning and why? I guess the biggest, my, my father, a hundred percent as one, I think he kind of taught me all the, the tenets of being like a good business person. You shake on a deal, you're committed to it. I mean, those things don't burn bridges some of the best deals I've ever gotten or things in my career have been with people I necessarily don't like. And sometimes those are even a better feeling than, than closing a deal with someone you, you enjoy. So from that perspective, I mean, learning how to treat people properly, just in general, how to be a good person from that level, especially in business when everyone's out kind of for themselves, knowing that sometimes the most selfish thing you can do is give the other person a couple points just because from a long-term perspective, it's in your best interest. I mean, they, that's what game theory is all about, really, that whole prisoner dilemma problem, uh, completely structured on that. I think if people started to really see long-term selfishness, they would understand that being nice to everyone and doing good things for everyone ends up having a positive effect on your life in the most selfish way. So it's very easy to think like that. On the other side, uh, one of the earlier jobs I had was running a bar while I was in college at Indiana University. And got a lot of you mean, sales and operational experience from that, really understanding just little nuances of where a table's placed to how people like to be you mean, crowded into each other. Where it, It's funny, just like they always have that old, that old saying, um, if you asked a, a customer what they'd want in a restaurant, it'd be a quiet, you know what I mean, relaxed, not loud, you know what I mean, all these like attributes about like their perfect restaurant. But then when they go out to a restaurant, they go to the crowded, most crazy, busiest place. And it's kind of like, you mean, what you say and what you actually want are two different things. And, and I learned a lot kind of about like customer psychology and operation kind of elements from running a bar and really helping it uh, get to being one of the highest grossing bars in the country. So um, from those two kind of alternate perspectives, like, uh, I mean, 
look at every little detail of every little thing and figure out how, how to make it work for you. And then also just general big, big picture, be a good person. And you mean good things will happen to you. I think both of those two kind of, I guess, dichotomy has really helped me kind of shape into the business person I, I've turned into. Wow. Is Kilroy's on Kirkwood actually the number one college bar in the U.S.? 100 percent it's not even, i i think i saw there was a some bar stool or i can't even stand them but like some um one of those like greatest bars like contests or whatever and they had like a, a bracket and they i think they had like kilroy's as like the 10th seed in the big 10 and instantly from there i was just like you guys don't know what you're talking about like, this, this is this is over i can't even like i was like don't no one from iu should participate in this because this is, doesn't even make sense but yeah i mean we were the, while I was there, we were the 33rd highest grossing bar in the country. And that's compared wow. to bars in Vegas, Chicago, New York, LA. And we were selling two to $7 drinks. So if you can imagine what the volume was like, um, I, the, the boss I mentioned, uh, he used to call it the Walmart of bars, just because it was like kind of like a Costco Walmart situation where mm-hmm. when, when Grey Goose or Jameson is $3 or $2, and normally when a $5 shot, you're only going to buy two or three of them because it's so expensive. But when they're two... You can kind of feel like the, you mean know, the big person on campus. Sometimes you buy fifty. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. it was very interesting to see like consumer psychology. I think the bar was, you mean, one of the most interesting. I think in hospitality, every single person in business should have some hospitality experience, um, just from sales and really treating people right and, and understanding how much that affects your day to day money. But I think the, the thing I learned the most from the bar more than anything even was, you know, having a different experience with every, every single type person that comes up, walks by the bar, literally potentially doesn't even want to drink is a different sales experience. How do you talk to them? How do you get their attention? You mean almost like bringing them down the funnel, but with just conversation in that moment. So, mm-hmm. and then obviously having a long-term relationship with them. So they'll come back, spend more, tip more. Like it was very interesting to see that all play out. And obviously I was there for about six, seven years through through kind of between serving general manager bartending even the whole the whole process so i got to see pretty much every element of a business yeah how do, how do we own a night how do we you I mean whatever like how do we this new liquor came in they want us to this there just to be the most popular vodka what do we do i mean all those kinds of things and i really got a lot of and it was almost like a, a lab that you got to test things out differently every single time it was like the ultimate a b test because like I said, you'd have a thousand people walk up to you, you yourself, one bartender in a night, and you'd be serving them all. And obviously every interaction was very different than the other. And then compared mm-hmm. to like your average sales interaction, where you might be like emailing someone or SMS or whatever, talking to someone who might even be a little bit inebriated, obviously there, there comes with challenges with that too. So just, mm-hmm. I, I got, I would say it was easily one of the best experiences. I mean, so much fun. I got to go out with my friends and I got paid for it. But from a business perspective, I definitely learned a ridiculous amount as well. So and going back to the comment of that, as far as the number one bar in the country, not only from a sales perspective, but if you ever get a chance to go to a basketball game out there, we're starting to become a little bit better at football, but tailgating and, and you know what I mean, going to the bars was always, was always a good time, no matter what, if we want or lose. So definitely, definitely would recommend a trip out to Bloomington. And if you do make it to Bloomington, Kilroy's is a hundred percent on your must-do list. Dude, that is amazing. I actually, so four or five years ago, I was the founder of a mobile ordering startup for okay. bars. And I'm sure you've been pitched a billion times on this when you were managing at Kilroy's, but I, I spent some time out in Aggieville, right, in Manhattan, Kansas, and I think similar to the IU crowd, 
I mean, the volume that these college bars saw was insane. Like you said, they're selling two, three dollar drinks, but they're flipping thousands and thousands of units on a nightly basis. And so the 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 purpose of our company was how do you enable bars to focus on flipping drinks instead of the processing? <laughs> what we learned was there's there's a lot more kinks in that assumption. But man, I I have a deep admiration and appreciation for bars. I cannot recommend a field of work more highly than working in hospitality. Seriously. Yeah. It, it, it should be a required part of um, understanding, like you said, everything from thinking through inventory, placement, how do you make a particular skew popular in the setting? How do you accommodate guests? How do you train employees? Like, mm-hmm. There's so many pieces. So another thing, Josh, I, I'd love to hear is as a, a founder of a company, as an operator, and as thousands of other businesses transition to work from home when really v- employees are getting very little, if not any, face-to-face interaction, at least in person, physical interaction. What has been the most either successful tool or activity um, that you've been able to employ to keep your team engaged in high hopes during this time? Yeah. So, I mean, again, for us, I guess one of the benefits of being a smaller company is that you don't have to like lay people off and things like that. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it's such a huge element of all these other businesses that are further along. So I think we definitely benefited from that of Really, the, the most other than like some of the social team members and stylists, most of our team works remotely already. Developers, data scientists, things like that. So that element really didn't change much of what we were doing. As I mentioned, obviously, our, my co-founder Drew is is packing all the boxes currently. Just as I mentioned, just we're really and our head stylist helps as well sometimes. But we're trying to really keep that circle super small as far as who touches anything now. As I mentioned, no one's uh, we haven't had any issues with COVID on that level, but just being super safe and extra careful just in case. But as far as like the organization, something we found from a remote perspective that we use pretty religiously is Trello. I don't know if you've had any experience with Mm -hmm. that, but it's kind of like Mm -hmm. that uh, Japanese organization tool with kind of like the different columns and the post-it notes. Yep. But yeah, so we, I mean, between our members, we have like separate boards for all these kinds of different elements of our business, but like our member and our brand partner boards are probably by far our most important as far as keeping track of the thousands of pieces of communication we've had or emails with a brand over the past two years. You know what I mean? You never know. I mean, some brands we've talked to 30 times before they've uh, signed up and send over inventory. And then some brands we've talked to once before they signed up and send over inventory. So you know, we always want to keep track of that. And not only that, knowing that I spoke to a brand so that with one of the uh, sales team members wants to reach back out to their brand, they know that I've maybe spoken to them in the past week or this is the, how we ended the last conversation. We needed to follow up with this document or this this video for them just to give them some more information to share with someone else in, in their on their team. So those kinds of things, it really helps is a huge, huge benefit for our business just organization is not necessarily my strongest suit and and Trello has literally made it almost impossible for me impossible for me not to be organized. Okay. So so I'm very very thankful for Atlassian and that for sure. Uh-huh. 
before we part ways, I, I'd love to do this. I'd love to lay out the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. Nothing, nothing too crazy. Just that we really more than anything, we'd love to serve your family. We'd love to get the opportunity to really show them how, how great rental can be for their children. And you I mean, how excited as a family that it is to get new clothing every month and how little extra work it really causes them. So from, from all those elements, really, we just wanted as many people to know that we exist and that we're an option for them. So if they are looking for something like us, they, they know we're here. Amazing. Joshua Luft, co-founder and CEO of Everlasting Wardrobe. You can find him at everlastingwardrobe.com. Joshua, thanks for coming out. We'll have to do this in 12 months. Definitely. Thank you again. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at In Good Hands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.